Oh, my stars, Steve. My stars and stripes. We have some exciting news. Shall we tell them? We should reveal that Chinwag is hitting the road again and going on a West Coast tour. Yes, that's right. If you missed us in your fair city, truly, friends, don't fret, don't fear, don't have a panic attack. (laughs) Do not panic. We will be recording live Chinwags in May in Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle. Yes, in L.A., we'll be at Dynasty Typewriter on May 14th. You can go to chinwagpod.fm slash Los Angeles for tickets. And on May 16th, we're going to be in Portland at Revolution Hall. For those tickets, go to chinwag.fm slash Portland. And we'll be at Town Hall, the great town hall in Seattle on May 17th. For tickets to that, go to chinwagpod.fm slash Seattle. You do not want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be mighty, mighty. So get your tickets at chinwagpod.fm, and we will see you there. Come on out, waggers. Come out, waggers. Come out. (laughs) Come out of hiding. There is an emergency light that I accidentally hit, and so they took away the the button, so I can't accidentally hit it anymore. <laughs> what, what? What? In case of what kind of emergency? That's like uh, no one will tell me. I think they're afraid if they told me, I'd be ringing it. So I, it's not there anymore. They that's just, if you didn't phrase it. The they, they aren't phrasing it in questions. They aren't phrasing it into questions. It, burn the place down. The button is gone. It was there. Now it's gone. <laughs> Well, Jordan, as you know, I just came back from my trip to uh, Spain. We were in Madrid, and then we went to Sevilla. We went down to the to the Mediterranean. My wife rented a car, and I rode next to her. <laughs> I wasn't going to drive. It was great. But then we went to the shock of all shocks, and that's Portugal. And I got to tell you, if people were going to ask me, if you were going to go to Europe, where would you go? You know, I kind of automatically think about Italy. And I know sure. you just were there with your mother. It's so beautiful in Rome. And But Portugal, you know, the and I'm not taking anything away from Spain because the people there were nice. The food was great. The wine was great. But it seemed as though the brilliance of these little communities over in Portugal were just amazing. And it was uh, it was a wonderful time. What what is it? Sell me on Portugal. Give me the uh, elevator pitch on Portugal. Well, I mean, you get over there by the Atlantic Ocean, and there's over in that direction is uh, Nazaré, where the waves get to be a hundred foot tall, where they surf, and they have the world championship. We went to another little community where they have a wall built around, you know, in order for protection. You know, probably in the twelfth century, they've now built a little community inside the walls. This is a long elevator ride. This elevator ride is going. Everything is just is brilliant. The colors, the the weather. It's just it's just an awesome place to go. But here's what I want to tell you. On the way over, we were on the airplane. We were all masked up. Okay, so we get in the plane. We're flying for about two hours, and then the pilot comes on and says, "Oh, you can take your mask off now." (laughs) Okay. Then we get in into uh, into Spain, and we have to wear the mask in the car, but we don't have to wear the mask anywhere else, not in the cathedrals, not in the art galleries, nowhere else. And then we go over to Portugal. We're going to fly out. Now, in order to fly out, you have to go get a COVID test within 24 hours. 
and you, if you don't if you don't pass the test, if you get a positive there, then you got to stay for a minimum of five days until you can get a doctor to write you a reason as to why you can leave. And one of the guys that was on the plane with us yesterday when we landed in New York, he said that uh, they were actually on a cruise, and when people they found out that somebody on the cruise tested positive, they couldn't leave their cabin. I mean, could you imagine what what that was like? Uh, and they would just. They, they weren't allowed to move around because they didn't, they didn't want anybody to infect anybody. But here's you the crazy deserve it. thing. If you, if, you, if you go on a cruise nowadays, you deserve it. What do you think about all this? You wonder why people are cynical about what they should be doing in, in the middle of this, you know, in the middle of this situation. I, I, I agree with you that it's confusing. And I've, I've traveled a bit for work, uh, a little bit for pleasure. And it feels like every community you go into has different rules. And I understand that. Uh, I mean, frankly, I find it infuriating. I, I wish we could all be adults and agree that we're going to just agree on one path forward. It's going to be the healthy path. And we're going to do that and not bitch about it. Sure, it's an inconvenience. We get it. It's an inconvenience. Uh, but if we all decide we're going to do this for the betterment of everybody else, we just focus on other things. So when I see people celebrating on planes, what have you, trust me, I, I empathize with the the feeling. I, I want to take my uh, mask off on a plane as well. And I hate that I land in Florida and suddenly now I don't know if I'm putting my mask on or off. Uh, <laughs> but I think like this confusion is just it's it's just a byproduct of the, politiz- well, the, the politization of, of all of this mask wearing. I think we've talked about this, Governor. Um, we were talking a lot about this article that came out about uh, Jonathan Haidt talks uh, a little bit about the dummy down of America. And I do think we have no shared narrative in this country right now. You can point to many things, social media, one of them, but there is nobody can agree on what the narrative of COVID is and or the science around COVID is. So nobody can agree on the uh, the way in which we approach it, which makes traveling outside of your own bubble infuriating and just a reminder that we are a country that doesn't know how to agree. What I don't know is why can't we just show the vaccine card? You've got a vaccine card, you're good to go. If you don't have a vaccine card, then you're going to get tested, plain and simple. Why not make it that simple? I agree. I mean, that's what we've tried in New York. The uh, vaccine cards, and you get them on your phone, and then you can pass it around and let you into restaurants. I'm a big fan of that. I mean, I look at you as a responsible man, a conservative, somebody in charge of a lot of people who had to take care of a lot of people. Uh, do you go that mildly inconvenient extra step and wear the mask even in places where it's uh, confusing? Well, of course you have to. You have to look out because you're the you're either the father or the mother of the people that live in the state where you are. You have to you have to look out for them. You have to be a protector. But let's be a little bit consistent. Let's figure out on Monday what we're going to do so that the following Monday we're still doing it. And I understand early on because I was pretty strong in the early on days about making sure that we do everything until we understand this thing. But we now understand it. We now understand what we have to do and what we do, what we shouldn't do. And it needs to be made more simpler because I think this leads to cynicism already on top of so much cynicism about our government, about science, about medicine, about health care, about all those kinds of things. All right. Why don't you go ahead and, and bring our guest in? We have a – you know, let's, let's, add a, let's add an air of mystery to who our guest is going to be. <laughs> if, they, if, if you are somebody who is on a device and you clicked on it without reading or it's, it's autoplaying and you don't know, so you haven't read anything, we'll give you a – a long Jeopardy-esque clue as to who our guest is today. And that may in and of itself be an already definitive clue. But work with me here, people. Uh, this beloved actress known for such hits as Blossom, 
The Big Bang Theory and Call Me Cat is also an accomplished neuroscientist and a best-selling author. She's making her feature writing and directing debut with her new film, As They Made Us, in theaters now and available on demand. Time to buzz in with your answers. Who is Mayim Bialik? Mayim, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hello, Governor. Are you already are you already sick of the Jeopardy jokes? No, I mean I think if I was already sick, we'd all be in trouble because I think they might continue for some time. That <laughs> <laughs> you're just gonna be constantly just bombarded with people talking in inverted questions to you. Well, I mean, my, my Passover Seder had an entire Jeopardy game that was built into it. I was hosted by someone else. <laughs> Well, thank God it's a, it's the it's the highest of the high in the echelons of game shows. It's it's not. God bless Mark Summers, but Double Dare, you'd just be barraged with slime if you went to meetings or a no, cranium, Play-Doh no, everywhere. It's it is a very it's a very safe and interesting thing for people to want to tease me about. <laughs> I I have a question as somebody who's been in this industry for for a very long time, um, and I I'm somebody who's been in this industry for a very short time. <laughs> Uh, I meet people on the street and they come to meet you because they know you from things they've seen you on television. So they come with a set of expectations and they understand you in one context. You meet people on the street who might understand you from your work with Blossom, uh, Big Bang Theory, Jeopardy, from your books. I guess to start it off, when you meet those people, which one of those people that they know you as is best reflective of who you are? (laughs) I mean... You know, I'm I'm managing a lot of people's needs because I never know what they're going to need from me. Like, do you need lactation advice? Do you need a Jeopardy piece of information? Do you need science? Um, you know, I, I'm I'm a mom to a 13 and 16 year old, um, but I think like those are those typically are the people that I kind of feel most at home with. You know, even parents that I don't necessarily agree with on on all topics. Um, you know, that's that's a portion of my life that you know, the, the public saw some of, but as anyone with children, you know, can tell you, like all of the moments that no one knows about or sees are actually who make you, you know, like, that's what makes you the parent who you are. So that's, you know, kind of feels like a huge component of my life. So when people come up to me and say like, you know, thank you for talking about breastfeeding openly, or thank you for not making it weird, you know, to not buy a thousand dollar stroller, which that's how much they were. That's how little they were in 2005. Now I'm sure they're much more expensive, but um, yeah, I resonate with people who also had a home birth and, you know, those kind of natural hippies. So um, yeah, those tend to be my people, but um, you know, I, I tend to try and make people have a pleasant interaction with me, no matter what their interest is. And a lot of people want to tell me how much they don't like my show, but their grandmother does. And I've gotten that from Big Bang Theory, from Call Me Cat, and now from Jeopardy. I have. I will say this again: on the smaller, much smaller version of it, almost every single man between the ages of twenty to forty I talk to is not a fan of anything I've done, but his girlfriend is a fan. That's right. I'm sure every single one. There's a, there's, it's such a shield that I get it. I'm like, it's hard to be vulnerable, but yeah, come can on. You his, can you sign this autograph to my girlfriend, Martin? Yeah. <laughs> Mayim, you know, what's, I just, as I look at the whole span of your career, it's, it's pretty shocking. Um, so you started like when you were 12 mm-hmm. and, and then you, you kept acting until you were 19, those whole, those teen years. I, and then you kept going. You know, you you think about all the young child actors. Most of them, they just you, you, they just disappear, right? 
how did you handle being in front of a screen and all that for all those years during your your teen years, and yet you you just seem so amazingly normal? I've watched some of your interviews, and you're just a very nice and, and kind person. What was it like to have to to do that all those years? Did do you feel you missed anything? And and at the end, um, you know, did it? How did it affect you? Um, all all very meaty questions. Um, I I do think, generally speaking, I I come off like a kind of nice person. I don't know that I come off as normal, but um, you know, I I had many years uh, in in my home of origin before I started acting where I think normal was thrown out the window, you know, probably when I was in utero. I come from a, I mean, you know, an immigrant, I'm the grandchild of immigrants. And so I come from a very strong immigrant kind of um, both philosophy and and structure of my family. And that that did provide a lot of discipline. I, I, I was always an obedient child, and that is a useful skill if you are an actor in Hollywood, um, especially as a, as a young person. Um, you know, uh, I'd like to say I, I handled spending those years in front of the camera and in front of, you know, America and the world uh, as well as I could. Um, I'd be lying if I said that it wasn't extremely difficult and strange. You know, those years are difficult no matter what. Mm-hmm. And to to have a, you know, an adult work schedule, essentially, um, and also be, you know, getting through school. And my parents were public school teachers, so schooling was very important to them and, and to me as well. I knew I wanted to go to college I, because my grandparents are immigrants, and that's what you do, is you go to college no matter what. So I was never really particularly taken with, like, the money, the fame, like, that aspect of acting. I really enjoyed performing, um, you know, for those of us who come from complicated homes. And, um, you know, I'm sure uh, Jordan might attest to this. You know, the stage is a safe place to hide. You know, it's just a different kind of presentation of your your stuff, your issues, your neuroses, whatever you need, you are getting on a stage. Um, so, you know, I... I I, I come from a pretty, you know, kind of square, uh, you know, square social group, meaning like drugs and alcohol weren't, you know, an option for me. I'm very grateful that I worked on sets that were clean. A lot of young people did not have that. Um, and I'm very, very grateful. I never saw drugs or alcohol, you know, on any of the sets that I was on in in, in all of those years. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that definitely helped, you know, I think just kind of being a nerd <laughs> helped like being a person who was you know, very interested academically in, in things. And, um, you know, I was raised with a a strong Jewish faith and that was something that was very important to me in terms of, you know, wanting to understand bigger concepts than, uh, you know, the ones Mm. that let's say, you know, are fun. And, um, you know, I I wasn't always fun at parties, but, you know, I found my group in uh, late high school and into college. I, I found my people who also wanted to read, you know, existential philosophy for kids. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, you know, some people talk about when, um, when television personalities, film personalities get their break, that they sort of stop maturing for somebody who gets their break so young, but then takes a, makes the choice to step away from the, the camera to go back to school. Did you feel part of you is, was playing catch up, uh, as far as maturity goes, did you have, you feel very self-aware? Were you, were you aware of that potential pitfall at that age? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, look, I, th- I think it can work both ways, you know, and in terms of, you know, did I miss out? Like, yeah, of course I did. And it's not something I I have talked about a lot because there's also this notion of like, 
why should we feel sorry for you? You know? <laughs> and so it's, it's hard to not communicate that without sounding like my life was so hard. I was on TV and I didn't get to go to prom, you know? Um, but I think in terms of kind of psychological development, you know, in many ways, I, I mean, they, they used to say about me long before I started acting that I was like a grown adult in, you know, in a five-year-old's body. Like, I just, I'm one of those kids that people always said, like, you're an old soul. And, you know, now they call it like indigo child or highly sensitive person. Like, I'm all those things. I'm all the colors of the rainbow that you would like. Um, so I, I, I kind of always felt in some ways like an adult. You know, my my nickname was Freud as a kid because I was always fixing everybody's problems in the family, which like is cute. But once you tell that to a therapist, they're like, oh, okay, we're going to be <laughs> for a while, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I did. I, I missed out on a lot of the kind of like teen gossip, dating, hooking up with random people. Um, you know, do I feel like that made me ill prepared for the real world? No. You know, when my kids, my kids are homeschooled and have been their whole lives. And, you know, when they ask, like, what do you think we're missing? I'm like, eh, not much. You know, <laughs> So, um, you know, I, I had enough of it to know that I wasn't like a lot of kids. I definitely didn't resonate with a lot of the kind of like girl culture, um, you know, which back then made you very, very strange. Now you get like labels and names and it's like a thing. And, you know, um, but I definitely didn't feel, you know, kind of like like I fit in anyway with kids. Um, so I think I was one of those people who just like, couldn't wait to be an adult. So the fact that I had an adult job, I think helped in some ways. Um, and you know, I, I've been like, you know, contemplating my mortality since like my 10th birthday. So it's not like I was, I feel like I was already like 67, you know, at 10. You must've been so fun at those birthday parties. They call <laughs> you, you know, Freud's over there in the corner contemplating death again. Great. Does she want to blow out candles? Oh no, it's just memento mori tattoos that she's thinking of. Wonderful. <laughs> you know, uh, Maya, this book got my attention because I have twin daughters. Uh, they're now 22. But over the last couple of days, uh, some people were asking us about what it was like, you know, because they grew up under a glare. Uh, I was elected governor. They were 10, you know, wow. and then and then they had to live, live, you know, being through that whole whole thing. And it, I thought it was it was pretty easy for them. But my wife has kind of corrected me. They had challenges and and, you know, but they did emerge. And that's an interesting question about when did you really emerge and become happy with yourself? But but even more important than that, this book called Girling Up. Oh, to me, that is like so important because you've written for really young girls who were on their way to growing up. Tell us a little bit about that book and what you think uh, the most significant aspects of it really are. Um, well, that's, that's very kind. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm still waiting to emerge and find myself, which I think is the most shocking thing about, you know, being a conscious human. Um, you know, I'm 46 and still learning things that I didn't expect to be learning, you know, about myself, about the world around me, about the way I interact. I, I just, I kind of consider myself this sort of constant work in progress, which is why I go to therapy and don't stop going. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, uh, be becoming a parent, um, you know, I was 29 when my first son was born and, um, you know, 32 when my second son was born. And that, you know, was its own kind of very unique awakening. Do I think all women need to have that awakening? No, but for me, that was a real awakening. Um, you know, I think that I, I wrote Girling Up. I also wrote Boying Up, 
in case, Governor, you'd like to polish up on your, your boy stuff. Um, you know, I, I wrote those both as, you know, a person trained in neuroscience, meaning, you know, I, um, I, I'm loath to call myself uh, an accomplished neuroscientist. You know, I, I have a doctorate and then chose to be home with my kids and taught, you know, neuroscience for junior high and, and high school. But I've never, you know, I've never um, had a, a research lab. I, I'm not that kind of neuroscientist. Um, however, you know, my training is in basic neuroendocrinology and, and, um, what I did is I, I wrote the book that I wish existed when I was <laughs> girling up, you know, when I was making that transition from, from girl to woman, as it were. Um, and I wanted to include aspects of mental health. I wanted to include aspects of, you know, um, aspects of nutrition that like no one ever kind of told me, you know, just things that like, I feel like you should know, or like, how do you make decisions about what you'd like to do? When is it, when do you start thinking about that? And, you know, I know that people can see anything they want as a vanity project, but this was not like, I'm going to slap my name on a book and like, it's fun to be a girl. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff about the complexity of, of the human experience as a female person. And while I'm not a boy, um, I, I wrote Boying Up because the endocrinology that I'm trained in is about both <laughs> males and females. Um, and I, I gathered voices of, of, of grown-up boys um, to, to kind of weigh in on different topics. And also as the mother of two boys, there's been a lot that I've had to learn about, yes, some of the differences between males and females. And I know that that can get um, tricky, but I, I will say from an endocrinological uh, perspective, uh, there are there are things that, that we know that I kind of chose to write about. Um, honestly, I, I have heard from a lot of people that including mental health in this sort of discussion, um, at least for when I you know, published them several years ago, um, was a very special aspect of the book um, and something I, I really wanted to include. You know, it's been thought of as so separate from kind of our experience. Like there's this, this thing over there that you might need, but it's, there's like stigma and it's, a, it's very expensive, you know, if you really want to get help um, with your mental health. And I think now, and as you were talking about in your introduction, it is so much more, you know, part of the vernacular and, and part of our lives. Do you think that is a book that, that moms and dads and young women and young boys should read about how to navigate the currents uh, of life, you know, as they're making these difficult transitions, you know, with 14 or 15 or 16, and how do I look and what do I do in terms of how, how do I have friendships and how do I judge? Is this something that could help their, basically their mental health and give them some stability? Well, I think, I mean, you know, that's essentially why I, I wrote it, you know, because I, while my parents did the best, you know, that they could, they were first generation Americans. And there was, I, you know, I come from a very traditional religion and culture. So there wasn't a lot of discussion about many aspects. And I, I think the notion that kind of our mental health is included in pretty much every aspect of our life is a newer concept that we're trying to become mm -hmm. comfortable with. So that really was kind of a, a general point of writing these books um, was that, you know, it, we, we can only sort of have opinions and have questions if we have information. And many of us just aren't given basic information. I mean, I can't tell you how many women came up to me and made comments about growing up that like they themselves did not really know what their menstrual cycle was or what it actually meant hormonally. Like, and the notion is, is, is not that that's the, you know, the end all be all of the female experience. However, one might think it might be important to know 
like the ins and outs of your body as you contemplate pregnancy, not pregnancy, becoming a parent, like what's your mental health like over the course of a month? So for me, mental health is kind of, it's in all these areas. And, you know, if you're talking about nutrition, that leads to body image, right? And like, there's the mental health part. If you talk about your family structure, then it leads to, is there addiction or abuse in your home, you know, and there's mental illness. So it's kind of all there. And you know, I did write this book for young people, but also for, for kids on the younger end, I I wanted their parent or um, someone close to them to be able to read it kind of along with them as well um, to sort of start conversations. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. I'd I'd hope that sort of the idea of emotional intelligence is something now that we're slowly getting around to. I know it's even that term was something I didn't find until I was an adult, but now I know my my niece and my nephew are starting to take classes in that at a very young age. Um, I want to talk about parenting. We talk about parenting a lot on this podcast. You wrote Beyond the Sling, and you've talked about it was controversial. I'm sure many people loved it. You also got some some vitriol for it. I guess that happens when you put anything out into the public uh, specter. Um, But you talk a lot about attachment parenting there. And Mm -hmm. I'd love your thoughts on, I've been reading another book, uh, called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Uh-huh. And he's been, now that talks socially a lot about uh, what's happening in universities right now um, yep. and the uh, free speech. And you have yeah. what he would articulate as sort of a generation of uh, young adults who are fearful of outside ideas. And Absolutely. he looks at social media and things of that nature. But he also looks at early uh, parenting and talks a lot about free range parenting, uh, the importance of free play. And Mm -hmm. that sort of at that age uh, between six and 12 is an important age to let kids uh, go and break things, go and define their own independence themselves. And I wonder, it feels like that's having another moment right now as part of the discussion. And I wonder how you would react to some, some of those ideas. I'm going to make a broad statement. I happen to agree with him and share those concerns um, I think one of the one of the things that's complicated is that attachment parenting attachment parenting has become synonymous with helicopter parenting, which by definition it's not the same thing. Meaning, attachment parenting is a set of principles that mainly revolve, for the most part, around decisions about birth, decisions about early feeding, um, decisions about. Uh, you know, the, the mammalian things we think about, how do we get comfort? How do we feel uh, d- like a safe dependency so that we can then become independent? Oh, sorry, I should also say, you know, not, not uh, using corporal punishment, meaning not, not using, uh, not hitting your children and not using, um, you know, coercive or even kind of, you know, into sort of the bribing um, sort of perspective around parenting. I'm being delicate because a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about this. It's not my business to get into other people's homes, but I will say one of the components of attachment parenting is that kind of gentle discipline is sort of the academic term for it. Um, Many of those things are mostly critical in that first year, the first two years, the first five years. Um, Many attachment parents, me being one of them, tend to have a more hands-off parenting approach, uh, which is more consistent with allowing children to figure things out on their own. Um, A lot of us uh, talk about RIE, the R-I-E philosophy, which is um, very much hands-off, not constantly narrating to your children. You know, a lot of parents do that kind of like constant talking, explaining, this is blue, the sky is blue, the sky, like that's not 
that's not, again, synonymous with attachment parenting. That's a particular choice that people make. So I was the parent at the park who couldn't stand to be around those parents that I think a lot of us are talking about who were like micromanaging my child wanting to share. Like, why won't he share? It's like, cause he's two. When he's done with the shovel, he, your kid can have the shovel and they'll figure it out. So I think that's part <laughs> of the issue is that people equate attachment parenting with hovering. Um, and that's, those are not, they're not, they're not always intertwined. And there are people who free range parent in our community. And a lot of them have no regulations on, let's say, what is eaten when, uh, bedtimes, TV times, video game times. That's also not my style. Um, I think a good mixture is important. The idea is to raise children who are independent, but also the kind of Western notion of like, they need to recite the alphabet as quickly as possible is something that many of us don't resonate with um, in more kind of holistic uh, circles. Um, we happen to follow more of a Steiner philosophy where the first seven years are kind of play and learning and reading and singing and being in your body. Um, and then academics start uh, more at seven. You know, I, I did not bubble wrap my children. Um, I happen to have children who didn't want to run and hit things and throw things. Um, their dad was also a very gentle guy as a kid. So I just kind of got two kids who were more on the mellow side. Um, but the idea is to, um, let them see the world and experience it, especially physically. Um, and so I, I would be in agreement and I feel bad that, you know, attachment parenting gets grouped with, you know, what to a lot of us is not palatable parenting and does seem completely bubble wrapped in many cases. I guess I'm, I'm curious, uh, as you know, height makes that connection of that what we're seeing potentially early on in adulthood is something that we're also seeing on campuses in America right now. As somebody who's an expert in all of those fields, I wonder how you view that. Do you see that connection there? Do you have the same? Um, I mean, uh, I don't know if I'm an expert. You know, I, I went to UCLA in the days when you could still talk about affirmative action. And, um, you know, it was a very different time. It was also the the early days of um, you know swastikas on the on the floors uh, outside of you know events celebrating Jewish events. It was the beginning of seeing the word Nazi you know equated with Yitzhak Rabin. Um, by, by, by all definitions, not a Nazi in terms of yeah. uh, you know many aspects. So I, I was you know I was at a public university at a time where this um, was starting to surface as a you know a. a you know, a, a hypersensitivity in a lot of ways in, in important ways. I do not know that I would survive uh, at a public university. And, and this is as, as a liberal, you know, as a, as what used to be called a liberal. And now I, you know, when I, when I talk to a lot of, especially young people, even my own children, I begin to wonder, am I not liberal? <laughs> like, like, what's happening? Um, so the, the climate, you know, the climate, I mean, look, many of us paranoid types um, predicted this. And yes, I, I, you know, having a 16 year old, I, I can tell you, I'm, I'm learning a lot um, about all the things I do wrong, <laughs> especially in the arena of nomenclature, um, you know, where we lean. And I really try and lean heavy on, you know, height kind of, uh, you know, rationalism, uh, but it's, it's very hard. And yeah, it does make me nervous. It makes me nervous, you know, when I think about my kids going out in the world, um, and, and what they are up against, you know, I mean, I've learned more terms, you know, for things that I never knew needed terms, because that's just what being a parent right now is like. Yeah. Maya, um, I am also very struck by the fact that you uh, are a person of faith. Mm -hmm. What I have found, I, I'm a Christian, what I have found without shoving anything down my kids' throats is that 
the element of faith gives you a sort of a compass. And I'm really proud of the fact that my daughter seemed to have a value system that is, is so positive. Do you feel that uh, being able to talk to your boys about your faith, which is, means a lot to you, um, and by the way, we look at the rise of anti-Semitism, it's just, so, it's just the most despicable thing, but when, we, when you talk to your boys about the Jewish faith, do you think you're imparting to them without preaching to them, but, but showing how, how you feel about it? that they're now, they, they, they begin to develop a set of values that, that you think make them, make them good citizens of the world. I mean, look, that's what we hope. You know, we, we of faith, yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is what we hope. And, you know, we also get to um, interact with many people who would point to as many problems with, um, you know, institutionalized religion as, as benefits. I, there's been a lot to kind of my faith for me, and what I try and impart to my children is um, there are many ways to live a good life, um, to be a person of generosity, compassion, and love to all those right. in need. Um, and while there are many ways to make that happen, um, I do choose to be part of a community that, by and large, is organized around those principles in terms of the, the tzedakah, you know, the, the charity that we do the way that we frame our lives and, you know, welcoming the stranger. And that is something that, you know, we take very seriously. And, you know, for Jews, it's obviously, you know, we like to be special. Um, we, we are an ethnic group, you know, we are an ethnic group separate from religious belief and religious practice, which means that we're also part, um, you know, of, of a nation that has a lot of complexity. We're, we're part of, you know, you, you can meet Jews who don't go to synagogue or believe in God, but they are very, very highly and strongly identified as Jews. So for us, it's it's um it's an interesting identity. And also, um, you know, in this political climate, very difficult, especially to speak to young liberal, you know, kids like mine, um, because there's a lot of complexity to what it means, you know, to be Jewish. For me, the the wonder I have in the universe, the miracle that is waking up every day. I choose to commemorate, you know, in in a sense of, gosh, I didn't make the sun come up, but something else did. And I, I do choose to honor that. Um, and I do that through, you know, through my faith. And also as a scientist, the, the wonder that I feel when I learn the things I do, when I get to experience that, to me, that's divine. And my kids, they sometimes say to me, like, you don't really believe in God because you believe like God is nature. And I said, well, nice try, guys. That that actually also <laughs> that flies. And you know, for Jews for thousands of years, it's been completely, you know, an, a significant part of our religious faith. Um, Wait a minute. Know. I I can believe in God if I believe nature is God. That's I can do that. Well, for, for me, if you believe the sun's going to come up tomorrow and I believe the sun's going to come up tomorrow, we have the same exact faith. You may just not say the same prayers that I do, but that that consciousness of a of a divine miracle, me, divine meaning it is outside of our realm of practical human computation and understanding. To me, I choose to call that divine. And my kids say, but not everybody does. I said, that's okay. I, we don't all need to be the same. Like, it's fine. The sun's going to come up tomorrow, right? Great. We're all on the same page. <laughs> As a person of faith, did that ever cause any tension in the uh, the world of Hollywood? That those don't always 
go together super well. I mean, we, we have a calendar that's very, very difficult. So if you've looked at an, an observant Jewish calendar, basically all of the fall is just a wash. Like we've got a holiday every three minutes. and it's well, a- Hollywood takes the whole summer off at times. After after Thanksgiving, prefer- nobody works till January. So I there's- would prefer to work through the summer so that I could have Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, like all that stuff off. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say it causes conflict. Like, yes, there are many Jews in Hollywood. There's many interesting historical and cultural reasons why we, we you know, if you can't, if you can't own land, you start telling stories and it becomes your thing and you don't have to own land to be a comedian. So, you know, we have a, a history of, of entertaining, as it were, for a very long time. Um, there are not a lot of observant Jews in Hollywood. That's for darn tootin' sure. Um, but it, it's not so much, you know, of a of a crisis. Like, of course, people say bizarre things um, about Jews that you wish they wouldn't. Um, and, you know, for me, like I, that I was raised you know, just kind of like expecting that. I mean, I hate to say that. I was raised expecting that. It's kind of like my black friends when Trump was elected, they were like, why is anyone surprised? Like, what's happening? (laughs) Why is everybody acting surprised? So, yes. (laughs) You have, I'm curious, uh, want to move a little bit into the podcast you're doing right Uh now, which is focusing specifically on mental health issues. Mm -hmm. What what, what is the connection between your, your education and your career and why you want to focus on something like mental health? Um, you know, I, I grew up in a home with, men, with mental health challenges. Um, and, you know, that goes back for many, many generations as far as we can count. Um, and it's something that a lot of us grow up with and nobody talks about, you know, same with addiction. And as you mentioned, I made a movie called As They Made Us, which is not a memoir, it's not an autobiography. But yes, I, I chose to, um, to use things from my life um, and from the lives of many others I know who grew up with um, mental health challenges. My father of blessed memory was, uh, was bipolar. Um, that's something that we didn't talk. We didn't even know to call it that it was just like, that's how dad is. Um, and he was diagnosed quite late, um, in, in our lives. Um, he was in his fifties, late fifties when he was diagnosed. Um, and, um, you know, when, when COVID started, when the pandemic started, I realized how, you know, all the things I've struggled with my whole life, because growing up in that kind of household is very, very stressful for children. And yes, there are also genetic factors that I likely have inherited uh, from both of my parents. And what I realized when COVID happened was like, oh, all the things that are usually hard for me became harder, you know, because I know what anxiety is. I've been in therapy since I'm like 17 years old. Um, And I thought, gosh, what about people who are experiencing this for the first time or don't know even to name it? And my partner, uh, Jonathan Cohen and I, we, we do the podcast together. And we said, think of all the people who have zero resources. They don't have a therapist. They don't, they don't have money to go to a therapist. They don't have a psychiatrist to be able to help them with medication if they need it. So we started Mind Bialik's Breakdown. And we basically talk about a different aspect of mental health every episode. Um, we sometimes have experts on. And we have, yes, we have celebrities. We have prominent people who are essentially experts in their own struggle. This is not like we made a podcast to tell people we've figured it out. I haven't figured it out. There's been times I've been on medication. There's been times I haven't been on medication. It's, it's not an attractive thing to talk about. I'm just going to be honest. Like it's, there's a reason that there's been a stigma. Like it's very, it's very hard to talk about these things. I've been inspired by, by other other public figures. Will Wheaton is a, a friend of mine and someone who I worked with on big bang theory, who, um, I was really inspired by his work with NAMI. That's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And I actually had used the resources of NAMI when my father was hospitalized. So I was 
I was a client of theirs and still was nervous to speak up. And when I saw that Will was doing things, I started getting more um, involved. And so this podcast is a, you know, it's a real labor of love. As, as you know, um, podcasts are, um, you know, it, it, it's tedious work and it's, it's a lot of stuff that people don't see and think about. It's uh, been very joyful though. And a lot of, a, a lot of, a lot of the people that we've had on um, have shared things that they otherwise don't share. There's something about me that makes people apparently want to like open up to me and tell us things. And um, it's very, you know, it's brave. Like I hate to use that word because it's so overused, but it is very brave for, especially for prominent people with reputations to say, um, this is what I'm struggling with and I haven't quite figured it out. Um, it, it's getting, it's my, it, it is, it's no question that we're making strides. I've been engaged in, in these issues for a very, very long time. I actually do work with Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, and we have a program called On Our Sleeves, where we have now provided information to over one million classrooms, and we're about to take it into the business. And I think you having a lifeline to other people, you must find this to be as rewarding as as anything you have you've ever done. I mean, I look at this you know, the girling up or now it's boying up. And I look at this, at what you're doing on this podcast on mental health. I look at what you do as being an outstanding member of the Jewish community. You are involved in a lot of really heavy and awesome things. Thank you. That's, that's very kind. And I think you're, um, you know, you kind of hit it on the head. It's, uh, I, I enjoy, um, my life as an actor, you know, it's a very interesting and fun way to make a living is, is playing pretend, uh, for a living. And, you know, I've been nominated for many awards and you get all dressed up and they put extensions in your hair and they <laughs> give you false lashes and they make it look like you don't do Taekwondo because your legs are all bruised. Like, you know, they, they dress you up, you know, and, and that's your kind of public face. Um, but you're absolutely right. And that is, you know, really driven a lot by my kind of you know, my, my faith in terms of like, what am I actually here on this planet to do? Mm. Um, you know, it's, I, I know that I was not tasked, you know, to be brought to this planet to look good on a carpet, you know, and it's a good thing because sometimes I struggle, you know, on the carpet. Um, but I was brought, you know, here as I believe we all are to sort of find, find a purpose, find our purpose. And I do believe that repairing the world is something that we are tasked with. That's the, the human mortal experience is we are not you know, we're not yet divine. So we get to kind of do the work here. And yes, for me, that has led me to a very busy life and a very interesting life. Um, but yeah, I spend a lot of my time working on these things. And when people say like, how do you get so much done? And like, are you two people? No, I don't have an active social life. I don't really watch a lot of television. Like that's how you get it done. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. And now back to the show. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to ask a little bit about Jeopardy. Uh -huh. uh, those are those are big shoes to fill, to say the least. I'm sure that comes with a lot of expectation and drama. Uh, I'm curious about that, but I'm also curious about literally hosting Jeopardy in those moments. Like, what what surprised you? What became more more difficult than you expected? In in uh, there's the macro stepping into the shoes, but quite sure. literally in those, those moments, I'm wondering what, what, what it felt like and what surprised you. Um, gosh, there's, there's so much, I mean, uh, you know, you obviously can't fill Alex Trebek's shoes and he's such a, you know, beloved icon, um, and, and a beloved person, you know, he really, um, 
his presence is really felt, you know, on that stage. He was, you know, he was, he was everything for that show and for the larger community. For me, there's, um, there's a, a lot of joy, you know, that I get from being surrounded by people who want to, to learn and who are kind of lifelong learners. Like, you know, I, I like to think that's a community that I, I love to be in. I love meeting these contestants and hearing all the things about their lives and then seeing them display not only intelligence, it's, it is partly that, and also the ability to be present and um, efficient with the delivery of that information and, you know, being able to regurgitate information that they've gathered over a lifetime. Like there's a reason I didn't go to med school. It's because information went in, but it didn't stay, you know, so I couldn't pass organic chemistry. Um, at least not with the A that I needed to get to medical school. So um, it, it's wonderful being in that environment. I really, really enjoy the behind the scenes things. Again, the things that not a lot of people see, the, the researchers, the writers that we have, um, getting to have conversations about clues with them. And we have like a writer's meeting, you know, every morning before we film. Um, there's a lot practically that's, um, you know, a, a, a constant, a, a constant evolving practice. Like I have a thing in my ear. So someone's like talking at me potentially at any time all day while also trying to deliver information and sound fluid. And, you know, Alex did it for many, many years. And um, in even Ken Jennings, you know, I, it's, I'm, I'm still learning some of that vocabulary and um, I, it is very enjoyable, not as enjoyable to do in heels, but it's okay. You know, cause it does, it's, it, it looks nice with the blazer. It's like a thing. Um, but I, I do, I do really, really, um, enjoy my time there. And as an actor, you know, who's used to reading a script, there's something really nice to kind of letting the contestants do, you know, that, that heavy lifting I'm, I'm reading clues, but the, the drama is really up to them. So, um, it, it has been very, very enjoyable. There is an emergency light that I accidentally hit. And so they took away the, the button. So I can't accidentally hit it anymore. (laughs) What, 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 in case of what kind of emergency? That's like, the thing, uh, no one will tell me. I think they're afraid if they told me I'd be ringing it. So I, it's not there anymore. They that's just, if you didn't phrase it, the they, they aren't phrasing it in questions. They aren't phrasing it into questions. Burn the place down. Button. The button is gone. It was there. Now it's gone. <laughs> so, so the, this, this thing about Alex Trebek. So my wife, um, just thinks you're the best, uh, from, you know, Throughout your your career, particularly Big like, Bang I hate Theory, you, but my wife loves you. Yeah. This no, is I, this I, is what we're talking a, about. I think you're yeah. amazing. No, no, no. I, I'm you. I'm over the moon. I'm sold. But since you're directing this this movie now with like these big time Dustin Hoffman, I mean, I I don't know how you tell him what to do. It's like telling you know LeBron James how to score a basket, but you have to do it. But what was it about Alex Trebek? Because she said she has not watched the show since he's gone. And she's going to get to it, and she's going to watch you. But what what was it about the qualities of Alex Trebek? I know you were saying he was kind. He was this. Yeah. How did it? How did it? How did it get through to to Americans? In your opinion, because you're directing people now, trying to get that voice through them. Right. What What was it with this guy? Can we also call out the slight that was just put in there? <laughs> I. I apologize. No, she, my She's wife, such my a wife, huge fan. She'll get my, around to it eventually. No, my, my wife says that she she was so excited when I told her we were going to do have you on this podcast, but she also told me that, you know, when it comes to Jeopardy... I get it. She's, she's a purist. Back. She's a purist. Yeah. But she's going to well, change. She said she's going to start to watch. You know? I'll let you know I'm what she thinks. I'm not going to hold my breath. Just say yeah. it. No, she will. 
Um, no, I think it's actually, that's an interesting question. I, I haven't also thought of it in terms of sort of like, you know, directing and the role that I sort of have in, um, in, I guess you're getting to know people in a different way as a director. And if I look at sort of the Alex of it um, through that lens, you know, I, I don't want to say, um, I don't want to say there's like a je ne sais quoi, you know, not just because Alex was, uh, um, you know, Canadian and spoke French, but there is something about certain people yeah. um, that really clicks. And I think, you know, it's more of a sociology question. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, it, I agree it, with you, it's, but it's, 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 it's interesting when it yes, comes to that guy, he's that, one of those that people. Guy, that guy was very, very special to people. And yes, part of it is the voice, the demeanor. I mean, he had an ease about him. Um, and those are things that we also look for, you know, in actors that we love, meaning he was a, a personality that people wanted to be close to. And I think that that's, that's true. I mean, it's true, not just of our celebrities. It's true. We want to be near people like that. And he was very, very special. Um, and I hope your wife will give me a shot, but it's, she it's will. different. You know, I'm not trying to be him. You can. Um, no. but, but again, it really is about the, the clues and, uh, you know, and trying to let those contestants shine. Well, fingers crossed. If you work hard enough, Stick to it. You're gonna you're gonna push through and get to the people who love you, but still it you still have stuff to prove. Exactly. Until she wants I won't be happy. What an illustrious career, but you still have to prove yourself day in and day out. May this be a lesson. <laughs> Guess what we do? That's an interesting thing. We do. And the interesting to me uh, is that you seem to be so successful, but yet you wear it loosely. And I think that might be what people like about you. I mean, you've had all these enormous successes, but yet you're you're just like a just a down down to earth person because very, you don't take this stuff too seriously, right? Oh, you cannot take it too seriously. I mean, there's a lot. Look, there's a lot of things I take seriously that other people think I shouldn't. Um, so it's a it's a mixed bag. But um, but yes, that is um, I guess part of like I said, just kind of part of who I am and. Um, you know, it's really, if my grandparents worked in sweatshops, you know, my parents were civil rights activists. Like I'm very, very old school American. You know, I'm one of those like patriots because we had nowhere else to go. And I love this country very much. And also I'm a, you know, I'm a bleeding heart liberal. I'm a very strange, <laughs> strange brew over here. <laughs> well, Mayim's new film, As They Made Us, is in theaters and available to rent or buy on Amazon, Google Play and other streaming platforms. And listen and subscribe to my and Bialik's Breakdown podcast wherever you get your podcasts and go to BialikBreakdown.com for more. Mayim, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was really a thrill to talk to both of you. I'm, I'm a fan of both of yours in different ways and I, I really appreciate what you're doing here. I think it is so important um, and really grateful to get to be a part of it. So thank you. Oh, you're the best. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. Jordan here. Uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. 
Line producer is Oscar Guido. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by ACAST.